these individuals have chosen to threaten and intimidate the America they profess to love. You say that like it's a bad thing. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. Not scared. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From with Pacifica you. Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast. As heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Up in Oregon. Oh, hello, Oregon. 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast and 106.7 FM KSO in Cozy Cottage Grove. On 93 FM WLRI out in lovely Lancaster, Pennsylvania. 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. Up in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And of course, coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the Progressive Voices channel on Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Nashville, and of course, Radio Sputnik, five days a week. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, and muckraker. Raking muck right here on the Bradcast and as ever over at bradblog.com. Glad to have you with us. Uh, coming up today, the uh, the latest in the debate debates. Yes, both uh, the GOP and the Democratic Party are, are having debate debates of late, it seems, both on the uh, GOP side with Donald Trump refusing, refusing to appear at the final Iowa debate Thursday night. Uh, oh, live by the wisecrack, die by the wisecrack. Fox News, you should have had that in mind before. Uh, anyway, uh, so Donald Trump. Uh, refusing to uh, appear at that debate with uh, and then uh, on the Democratic side, we've got debates about debates as well, where uh, the Clinton and Sanders camps and the DNC are all playing various forms of chicken and public negotiations around the possibility of adding a new weeknight primetime Democratic debate to the schedule after Monday's Iowa caucus and prior to the first in the nation primary set for uh, New Hampshire one week later. So we'll have uh, information on that. And also, and this is something I've been working on now for a while, actually, had planned to talk about it today. And then all of a sudden it has blown up. Uh, nobody was talking about it before. And then but I was getting email about it. But anyway, fresh concerns now about a new high tech addition to the otherwise low-tech and transparent Iowa caucuses that I know uh, listeners have, have been concerned about, have been sending me email, as I mentioned. I will explain why you should or shouldn't be concerned about Microsoft's new contribution to next week's Iowa caucuses. Uh, I know that the Sanders campaign has expressed concern about it. That is understandable, but is it justifiable? I will explain in a bit. Also, Desi Doyen will be here to join us with the Green News Report. Hi, Desi Doyen. Hey, I am here. I know you am. 
uh, information in today's uh, report uh, about the Democratic, uh, well, about the Dems talking about climate change in the recent presidential forum up in Iowa. Also, uh, news about Florida mayors going after Marco Rubio for becoming a climate change denier. Yes, Uh, it's been quite the transformation from him. Yes, it has. Uh, Also, an update on Flint. And, uh, well, much more. Oh, notably, uh, score one for the good guys, in this case, the coal miners in their fight against black lung disease. That'll be coming up in the Green News Report in a bit. But first, as we discussed yesterday on the program, late on Tuesday, eight of the leaders of the so-called Patriot Movement's occupation of the Mollier National Wildlife Refuge near the town of Burns, in Harney County, Oregon, were pulled over by federal and state officials on their way to a meeting in a neighboring county. Among those who were arrested were Eamon and Ryan Bundy, sons of the Nevada rancher Cliven Bundy, uh, who, whose uh, years-long fight against uh, charges for grazing his cattle on federal lands culminated in that armed showdown between militants and uh, federal officials back in 2014. Uh, The leaders of that Oregon uh, protest were charged with conspiracy to impede officers of the United States from discharging their official duties through the use of force, intimidation or threats. One of the Oregon militants, uh, Robert Lavoie Finnicum, an Arizona rancher who had recently told reporters he'd rather die than be taken into custody, was shot and killed during the Tuesday night confrontation with law enforcement during the the, uh, stop on Highway 395 in Oregon. According to officials, both of the vehicles that the protesters were driving in initially complied with an order to pull over, but then the lead vehicle is said to have taken off only to run into a snowbank. Finnegan then, uh, apparently, according to an official who spoke with uh, NBC News, Finnegan then jumped out of the vehicle brandishing a firearm before he was shot and killed. But the accounts of what actually happened in that showdown have conflicted with varying accounts of Finnegan having charged at the officers while another eyewitness claims he had his hands up, was on his knees when he was shot. The uh, standoff originally sprang from a dispute over the jailing of two local ranchers at the beginning of January, even though the family of those ranchers say they did not seek or even want the help of these protesters, much less the month-long occupation of the wildlife refuge where the armed militants demanded that the federal government turn over the land, which had included sacred Native American lands, uh, to the state or county. Now, there are still a number of holdouts occupying the Malheur National Refuge, though in a statement released by his attorney, Eamon Bundy has now asked law enforcement to allow the holdouts to go home without being arrested and has asked those still at the refuge to go home. Here was his attorney uh, reading Eamon Bundy's statement late last night. I'm asking the federal government to allow the people at the refuge to go home without being prosecuted. To those remaining at the refuge, I love you. Let us take this fight from here. Please stand down. Please stand down. Go home and hug your families. This fight is ours for now, in the courts. Please go home. 
Until the arrests on Tuesday night, the occupiers had been moving without police interference between the refuge and the city of Burns, even attending a county-sponsored community meeting at the Burns High School a, a week or so ago. The Tuesday action had come just days after local and state officials, including uh, the Oregon governor, had publicly complained about the apparent inaction by federal law enforcement. Uh, joining us now from Burns, Oregon, is independent investigative journalist Arun Gupta. He has written for The Washington Post, The Guardian, The Nation, and Salon. He has been up in Oregon reporting on the standoff at the Mollier National Wildlife Refuge. For our friends over at rawstory.com, uh, Arun, uh, welcome to the broadcast. Uh, thank you very much. Just just a little correction. I, I left uh, last night because uh, I'd been there for a week, uh, but the story is pretty much uh, wound down at this point. Yeah, well, that's that's optimistic, Arun. I hope you're right about that. <laughs> uh, sounds like you you took Eamon's uh, uh, suggestion to go home. Uh, if if I'm not uh, if I'm correct, this took place. This all started just after New Year's. How long had you been up in Burns covering that uh, entire fine mess, Arun? I, I had been there for the last week. Um, mm -hmm. I had been uh, doing some other traveling and reporting, so I wasn't able to uh, get up there uh, until, like, I think around the 19th, um, and uh, I was there uh, until the 27th. Now, there have been conflicting reports, as I mentioned, over the last couple of days about the death of uh, the the spokesperson for the group, uh, Lavoy Finnicum, uh, and his uh, killing on Tuesday night. Um what, 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 like I said, one witness says he charged officials, another says he was on his knees. What, if anything, do we actually know about this uh, and, and about what happened at the time of his death? Well, okay, the first thing is there's only one, uh, apparently there's only one non-police uh, witness uh, to the event, uh, this young woman, Victoria Sharp, who was riding with him. Mm -hmm. uh, second, uh, never trust anything uh, the FBI says. <laughs> um, uh, this is, the FBI was, was founded as a domestic uh, uh, force for, uh, to repress uh, uh, domestic movements, particularly on the left, um, but they're very skilled in uh, psyops, misinformation. I was at the uh, press conference yesterday where the FBI was, they were, they were pretty much indicating that um, the uh, remaining militants, uh, now the latest reports are that they're four left, um, Yesterday, they were told that if they left, uh, they could. Be, they said they could go through the checkpoints and will identify them, of course. And according to their supporters, they were being told that uh, they would be allowed to go home. Now, that's really quite unusual, and I read it as well. They're identifying them because they'll pick them up at some later point. Um, and the supporters, these other militia, said their understanding was they would allow them to be go home. Mm -hmm. And then uh, when the militants left, uh, they were arrested. So they were, they were basically getting up in front of dozens of media and deceiving them. Uh, second, uh, when this stop, uh, when this uh, trap happened, it's been consistently described as a traffic stop. Uh, I talked to folks who uh, I saw some of what happened who were on that road. Uh, one couple who were uh, going to the same meeting the Bundys were at. I was actually also going to the same meeting. I was not too far behind the Bundys and came across the scene, but it was uh, blocked out of view shortly after it happened. Uh, but one couple who was ahead said they saw seven um, uh, SUVs and pickup trucks 
uh, uh, right by the side of the road, and that's what was uh, cut him off at the the head. It's basically just this two lane highway that goes through uh, a national forest, and it's it's very easy to block it for miles and miles on either side, which is what uh, uh, the FBI and the police did. And then I talked to someone else who claimed, according to a militia member, um, leader of a, a militia, who claimed, according to his sources, um, the uh, other tail, um, the other end was 11 vehicles. So if that's true, 18 vehicles presumably full of scores of heavily armed FBI and police, mm-hmm. is not your regular traffic stop. No. Um, so when uh, we hear these reports that Lavoie Finicum was charging, especially when you have um, a young woman, I talked to other members of her family, they're they're very nice. They're very um, I mean they're they're religious evangelical. I would just put a lot more uh, uh, credence into what she had to say because uh, coming up uh, with a, a lie like that is is very difficult uh, to do. Um, and they're they were very straightforward uh, people in, in terms of when I I spoke to them. They didn't seem um, like folks who would deceive you. So if Wait. she says he was shot with his hands up, I would uh, give credence to that report. And uh, you, you say there there are reportedly just four still left, uh, holdouts still left. I want to ask you about that in, in a minute. But as to the uh, actual shooting death of uh, Lavoy Finnegan, did, did officials or have officials said, uh, surely there was video uh, of all of this. Was there dash cam video? Do they plan to release it? Have they admitted that there <laughs> even is video? There's been no discussion of that whatsoever. Uh, they have it at the press conference. They refuse to take any questions. You know that's not a press conference. They could have just uh, sent out some press releases. It was ridiculous. Um, so they, they're tr- very much trying to control the narrative. And and given a number of things that went on, um, I, I think you know they were engaged in kind of psyops. And we that's part of military warfare. We know that. Um, so uh, why wouldn't they do that? And we also know what what uh, kind of the, what kind of psyops are. are you're referring to um... well there was supposed to be this uh meeting in town uh last monday night and uh it was supposed to be a community meeting the previous week there had been a community meeting where Ammon bundy had shown up with 20 followers and a number of them were open carrying and it was at a school and uh that kind of really freaked a lot of people out in burns oregon and people assumed that the rest were carrying uh, concealed weapons as well so they decided they were going to move it to a senior center um, where there were no uh, guns allowed. It was only going to be open to Harney County residents, so uh, Ammon Bundy and his crew. And then suddenly, uh, at the last minute, it was canceled, because allegedly because of uh, protests, uh, because there were going to be protests. And I talked to uh, the folks in uh, Malheur directly, and they said they were not intending to do that. And given that uh, the uh, trap was sprung the next day, it, it kind of had that feeling like, okay, maybe this was, they're, they're just trying to create this atmosphere of, of tension, you know, of, of just to heighten the anxiety uh, to justify what was coming down the next day. There was clearly, there was a lot of increasing um, activity uh, in town. Um, I went out to the airport a couple of times where the FBI was. It was a uh, just all sorts of, uh, uh, you know, not military personnel, but for all intents and purposes, that's what they were in, in camouflage gear with um, uh, 
all sorts of uh, weaponry, uh, military-style vehicles. Um, so, you know, you don't just plan an operation uh, in in a split second. Mm-hmm. Um, there was well, a, the reason uh, the Bundy brothers and their crew were going to, uh, they were going to this meeting in, in Grant County, which right. is a neighboring county to the north. They were going to set up this thing called a Committee of Safety. And here's the thing to really understand about what was going on there. Um, they were they were essentially wanting to overthrow the U.S. government. Like people that that hasn't been, I think, properly explained. That, that, w- saying, let me uh, Arun. Let me make sure I understand. You're saying they wanted to overthrow the U.S. government. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. They, they, I mean, these, these are you can call them revolutionaries or maybe mm-hmm. counter revolutionaries, but that was their ultimate goal. They wouldn't come out and say that because that's of course the sedition, and they, they're very. You know, they want to do everything constitutionally. Did they, did they say they as did they say as much to you, Arun? Did they say uh, we ultimately would like to overthrow the U.S. government, or are you just sort of inferring this from the interviews and so forth you had with with them and, well, and others it, down it, there? It, let me let me explain. Yeah. It's, it's it's really okay. So they said we want to return uh, the U.S. to a constitutional government. Right. And so. You know, when you ask them what that would mean, is basically they wanted to virtually abolish the federal government. Um, they wanted to uh, really uh, take away nearly every single cabinet, um, leaving just a few, like Department of Defense, Commerce, and Treasury. Each one of those would then be radically restructured as to what they saw as a proper um, uh, constitutional um, uh, uh, ends. And then on top of that, they're like, I, I would ask them directly, well, what uh, governments do you, uh, do you think are uh, properly uh, uh, con- are obeying the Constitution in the U.S.? And they'd be like, none. And, and so what they were doing, they were going to Grant, Oregon, to set up a committee of safety. They had done that in Harney County. That's where the refuge, the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge, and Burns is located. Mm-hmm. This committee of safety was to be there. They saw the county government as completely corrupt. They, want, they had started these common law grand juries to indict local officials. They wanted to have an emergency election um, to replace the sheriff. Now, when you start to put this all together, they are basically, it, it's, it, they're saying we want to overthrow right. every form of government in the U.S. and uh, start anew with these uh, committee of safeties, with these grand juries, with these new sheriffs. And that's what they were trying to do in Harney County, and they were going to Grant County to do the same thing. And, well, and that's now, what I wanted to, let, let me ask you specifically about this, because uh, the the sheriff of Harney County, where they were, uh, was, was not particularly supportive uh, of those efforts, and uh, yet the uh, the sheriff in the neighboring county, in, in Grant County, where you said that they were headed when the trap was sprung out there on Highway 395, he had claimed to be supportive of the overall goals of severely limited constitutional government, as you describe it in your uh, in your coverage over at rawstory.com last night. Uh, do we know if he really did support their efforts or was he a part of this uh, this trap by federal officials to get the leaders off of the refuge onto the highway in a place where, as you said and you saw, they had really nowhere to run. They, they were going to be trapped on this highway. 
Was he a part of that exactly. effort? Exactly. That was the next point I was going to make mm-hmm. as part of this uh, psyops uh, uh, that the, the FBI and police were engaged in. The, so in Harding County, Sheriff Ward very much uh, opposed them, opposed what was going on. Mm-hmm. In Grant County, um, the sheriff there, Glenn Palmer, uh, is known to be, um, he's apparently a three percenter, which is this radical militia group. Mm-hmm. It gets its name from allegedly the percentage of colonialists who fought um, against the British in the Revolutionary War. He is a member of this, like, uh, constitutional sheriff's association mm-hmm. that also calls for a radical um, uh, limits on federal power. He spoke out in favor of a uh, the Bundys, he met with them, they autographed his uh, a pocket constitution. Everyone would carry, instead of Bibles, they carry around pocket constitutions in right. the refuge. Um, so then, you know, this is one source. It, it is unconfirmed. There is no independent confirmation, um, but a source that was generally, generally reliable uh, told me that Sheriff Palmer was the one who invited them to come up uh, for this committee of safety meeting, yet he was not there. And the source claims that Palmer was either at um, uh, the northern roadblock or at the ambush site himself. Mm. Um, so uh, the contention is is uh, this was a, a setup um, on the part of Palmer. And I could totally see that happening. You know, this guy was flirting with... Uh, uh, the sheriff was flirting uh, politically with these insurrectionists, and the government probably came down on him like a ton of bricks, like, you know, we will destroy you if, if you do not uh, uh, play ball. Um, and they may have used him to set the trap. Well, that's it's also possible. Spe- that's all speculation, right? Well, uh, but, well, yeah, well, I was going to say it's also possible that he, in fact, just, you know, simply could have been sympathetic to the federal government as, as you know, wanting to work with them to clear these people out. It didn't necessarily have to be that he, they were... He, he, he had been on the record as, as with the same goals, pretty much, as, as the Bundys. He wanted... He had spoken out about uh, government overreach and uh, federal government powers need to be uh, radically limited. So he was on the same page, right? right. I, I'm not attributing. I'm not attributing any motivation to him because yeah. I haven't talked to him. I don't know, but it all makes sense. It is a possibility that should be considered. A lot more digging needs to be done. A lot more evidence needs to come out before we can make conclusions. But this is part of investigative reporting. You have to see. Does it make sense? Follow this lead. I'm speaking with independent investigative journalist Arun Gupta, who has been, uh, for the past week, had been up in Oregon, near Burns, uh, Oregon, and the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge, reporting on the standoff up there for rawstory.com and others. Uh, Arun, we spoke with the founder of the Oath Keepers, a fellow by the name of Stuart Rhodes, another one of those groups akin to the three percenters you had mentioned. Uh, We spoke with the Stuart Rhodes on this show a few weeks ago, just after the standoff had begun, uh, and just after his group said that they would not participate in that particular occupation. He told me that he was concerned with uh, frankly, uh, the stability of some of the people involved in the action that he didn't trust Eamon Bundy, but he said that others, uh, frankly, were not particularly stable. Now, you say uh, there are reportedly still four left, four holdouts left. 
what do we know about those people and and frankly their stability? Did you talk to any of those people who are still remaining there? Uh, and are they more or less radical than uh, the, the leaders who have already been arrested, from your knowledge? Yeah, I mean, the, the Bundy's, uh, they tried to be careful in terms of who um, they were vetting and letting into the camp. At the same time, um, they pretty, it was obvious that they felt they needed to have, like, uh, uh, a force of numbers uh, to stave off any sort of a, a government attack, so that means you're going to end up loosening your standards. And the one uh, uh, man who's been live-streaming, by the name of David Fry, I met him there, and he seemed like a bit of a strange fellow. Um, that that's uh, that's you know that was my impression of him, and uh, he's been making pretty apocalyptic statements. But the last stuff I I've seen is saying that uh, uh, they want to come out. There's four of them, but uh, one of them is. Uh, uh, has an uh, arrest warrant, but they're all going to be arrested anyway. I I, I don't think. Um, well, uh, arrested or or arrested or killed, uh, frankly, at this point, uh, David Fry is the one who said that uh, we have new leaders now and new plans. This is following the arrests, and he told Cleveland Plain Dealer that he was prepared to lay down his life. Uh, in fact, that is something that Lavoy Finnegan. Uh, who has since uh, been killed, something that he said as well, that he would rather die than be taken into custody. Uh, in the minute or two we have left here, uh, Arun Gupta, uh, I, I, I hope you sort of mentioned the best-case scenario, that those four are arrested. Uh, I'm concerned, as you note uh, in, your, in your story last night at Raw Story, uh, first Ruby Ridge and Waco now burns. That seems to be a rallying cry from some of these militant leaders. So I'm concerned how this all wraps up. But as someone who covered, uh, because I believe you covered the Occupy Wall Street uh, uh, protests as well, I just wanted to get some perspective from you, the, the difference in the way uh, you saw uh, officials, whether they're federal or local uh, law enforcement officials, the way, uh, you know, th they dealt with the Occupy demonstrations versus this particular demonstration up in Malheur. Was there a notable difference between the two? Yeah, I mean, uh, a much more uh, hands-off approach in terms of uh, Malheur. Um, you know, Occupy protests across the country, the um, uh, the police uh, ended up uh, attacking uh, uh, many of them mm -hmm. uh, in mass and force. And I think um, the federal government uh, uh, definitely uh, let this spiral out of control. Originally, when they took it over, there were only nine of them. Um, they could have uh, put up uh, the blockades um, a mm -hmm. long time uh, uh, before that. They certainly could have done it within a couple of days. Um, but um, they didn't uh, choose uh, to do that. Um, so, you know, uh, in the end, uh, they finally acted, but um, I, it, it took a long time. And I think, uh, you know, the other reason I, I think uh, they acted at that point, the other thing that makes me suspicious is was uh, um, a setup is the entire leadership um, of the uh, Bundy militia was in those two vehicles. And so it allowed them to do a decapitation strike, right? This is like kind of, you know, because the, the Bundy militia, they're a militia, they have military vets, they were trying to do everything in terms of military strategy and tactics, and that is just a huge um, strategic 
put all your leadership in uh, uh, two vehicles and right. uh, send them off on this isolated road. So that's why I think it's, it's a possibility. It could have been a setup. But what comes next? Right now, it's all talk, you know. And but I think um, there's a lot of anger out there around this. There's also a lot of anger around, you know, just a lot of the West is dying rural areas. Um, there's a lot of anger about land management issues, um, about a lack of economic development, and there's uh, a lot of extreme right-wing groups, uh, many of them are pretty racist, white supremacists, um, that can take uh, advantage of, of this. Um, so I don't think we have seen the end of this, uh, whether it involves another takeover, that probably seems less likely, but there could be some random anti-government violence down the road. Arun Gupta, uh, independent investigative journalist uh, who has been covering the uh, standoff up there in Oregon for rawstory.com. Uh, he also has uh, contributed to Washington Post, The Guardian, The Nation, Salon, many others. And I should note, uh, according to your bio here, you are the author of the forthcoming book, Bacon as a Weapon of Mass Destruction, a Junk Food-Loving Chef's Inquiry into Taste. Is that really the book? And that's really the book. I'm also a French-trained chef, and uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm writing a, a book about um, how our tastes are basically uh, shaped more by uh, social forces than they are by physiological forces, which is how most people treat taste. Wow. All right. Well, we will look forward to uh, perhaps having you back on to talk about that book when it when it comes out. Thanks, Arun. That'd really, great. really great talking to you. And thanks for your good work up there in Oregon. Stay in touch. Thanks. Thanks for having me on today. You Brad. bet. All right. A quick break. And we are back with more broadcast. The Bernie Sanders campaign is very concerned about a new piece of high tech software being used in the otherwise low tech Iowa caucuses. Should Sanders be concerned? I will explain all of that and more straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the broadcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. But there's no sound that no one knows What does the fox say? What does the fox say? And why are they saying it? Man, I wonder if Roger Ailes is now cursing himself for uh, taking that shot at Donald Trump. Uh, and losing him from the debate. Uh, you know, PR, uh, the Fox Department at uh, PR has been like this for years, uh, coming out with this uh, statement. So uh, so Donald Trump, as you now know, Donald Trump says he doesn't, you know, he, he called Megyn Kelly a lightweight. He wasn't sure if you would appear at the Thursday night debate. And then the Fox PR Department, which has been like this for years, comes out with this incredibly sarcastic comment, this shot at Donald Trump about their secret sources that tell them that the Ayatollah and Putin both intend to treat Donald Trump unfairly when he becomes president. And Donald Trump said, you know what, the hell with this, I'm leaving. And uh, so, you know what, live by the sword, live by the snarky comment, die by the snarky comment. Uh, in the meantime, 
Donald Trump's event for veterans has been decried by veterans. This event that he was holding instead of the debate. Uh, we talked about yesterday how VoteVets dot org uh, 400,000 supporters for that veterans group said don't be don't hide behind us don't hide from Megyn Kelly behind us now the IAVA Iraq Afghanistan veterans of America uh, said uh, we, we, we will decline any donations from Trump's event we need strong policies from candidates not to be used for political stunts. That was Paul Rykoff of IAVA. Even the Wounded Warrior Project, uh, which has come under fire of late uh, for their huge amount of money that they spend on raising money, their huge administrative costs, uh, recently in the New York Times wrote about this. Uh, even they say, well, we don't know what the hell Donald Trump is talking about. But I bet they will take his money if he offers it to that group, at least. Anyway, that's going on on the Republican side of the debates. On the Democratic side of the debates, the New Hampshire, New Hampshire Union leader and MSNBC announced they would hold a debate after Iowa and before New Hampshire next week, despite the fact that it was an unsanctioned uh, 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 an unsanctioned debate that the DNC did not approve in advance. Of course, they only want them to be secret and on the weekends, supposedly, to help Hillary Clinton. But now that Hillary Clinton's not doing so well, uh, or at least is up against it, all of a sudden uh, there's talk about having another debate. Well, that's fantastic. I'd love to see that happen. We talk about it on the, talked about it on the show. Yesterday, the Clinton campaign has said they would do it. The Martin O'Malley campaign, of course, said that they would do it as well. And then late Wednesday night, Bernie Sanders uh, put out their response. They had initially said, no, it was too late. Now they're saying, well, we will do it, but we will only do it if more debates are added as well. The official statement from Bernie Sanders campaign manager Jeff Weaver on Wednesday night said, from the beginning of this campaign, Senator Sanders has called for more debates. Secretary Clinton has not. Now she is asking to change the rules to schedule a debate next week that is not sanctioned by the DNC. Why is that? The answer is obvious, they said. The dynamics of the race have changed, and Senator Sanders has significant momentum. Senator Sanders is happy to have more debates, but we are not going to schedule them on an ad hoc basis at the whim of the Clinton campaign. If Secretary Clinton wants more debates, that's great. We propose three additional ones. One in March, April, and May, and none on a Friday, Saturday, or holiday weekend, they said. And all of the uh, three Democratic candidates must be invited, they added. <clears throat> if the Clinton campaign commits to this schedule, we would ask the DNC to arrange a debate in New Hampshire on February 4. So there could be an additional Democratic debate next week. Well, how do you After think? After Iowa. Well, I, I'm curious what you think about the Sanders campaign's uh, negotiating tactic of saying, oh, well, sure, sure, we wouldn't do it. Okay, well, maybe we will, but only if you add more. Well, A, I think they should take the opportunity to have the debate, period. But clearly, they are now feeling like they're doing pretty well in Iowa. They're feeling like they're doing well in New Hampshire. They don't have to just take any old offer that they can actually leverage this uh, interest, this sudden interest from the Clinton campaign and having more debates by saying, OK, we'll do it, but you got to give us more. And I 
maybe smart negotiation uh, tactics there. I, it, you know, it, it won't look great if they end up not having this extra debate because of Bernie Sanders refusing to do so. But, you know, it's a, actually a smart negotiating move to say, yeah, well, you know what? We got the power now. Give us some more debates, Ms. Clinton and uh, Ms. Wasserman Schultz at the DNC. And maybe we will uh, and we will be happy to join you in this other one that you would like to have next week. So we'll see how it works out. Speaking of next week and speaking of Iowa, I know a lot of people have been very concerned about this today. Suddenly a bunch of stories broke all at once about this. I've been looking into this concern uh, in uh, in uh, Iowa now for some time about this new piece of software that Microsoft that, that has been built by Microsoft will be used by both Republicans and Democrats in the Iowa caucuses on Monday. OK, let me give you a little bit of background here first before I explain if you or the Bernie Sanders campaign who has expressed concern should be concerned about it. You will remember I've talked uh, many times on the show about the transparent voting and counting process that exists in Iowa, at least in the Iowa caucuses. The Democratic and the Republican caucuses are both a little bit different. Uh, basically, on the Republican side, they take ballots, little scraps of paper, in fact, at each of the some 1,700 caucus sites. They write down their preferred candidate. They put it into the box. And then they publicly count those scraps of paper in front of everybody right there and then at each of the 1,700 or so caucus sites. And then those results are called in to the GOP central headquarters. They add up the numbers and then they report them. Uh, the Democratic uh, process is a little bit different in that they hold them sort of sometimes at people's houses. They stand in various corners of the room if one candidate doesn't get or if any of the candidates don't get 15 percent, they're not considered viable. Then their, their supporters have to go to uh, some, you know, to another candidate if, if they like. In any event, again, a transparent process that everybody in that room can see on each basis. And then the numbers are called into the central headquarters, etc. <clears throat> Pretty transparent. Now, on the Republican side, the process is particularly hypocritical. I need to add that because they are doing hand-counted paper ballots, something that they have been against doing. They prefer computer tallies in, in most cases around the country. But when it comes to their own caucuses for which they set the rules, they prefer hand-counted paper ballots. And that's what we're going to have again this year. They also uh, are not requiring a photo ID in order to vote. They could require a photo ID. They wouldn't have to go through the legal uh, gyrations that they have to go through when they're trying to institute photo ID restrictions at the uh, at the polling place in states around the country, including in Iowa, where the Republicans there have called for photo ID, but only for voting, you know, that involves Democrats on their own processes, their own caucuses where they set the rules they could require photo ID. They could say, if you don't have one, you're not allowed to vote. Instead, they're asking for one, but they'll allow you to vote if you don't have one. Hey, as long as we know you and, you know, you're not a uh, one of them Democrats, one of those minority voters. So it's particularly uh, hypocritical on their side. In any event, it is transparent, and it is that transparency that saved the 2012 election, uh, the 2012 caucuses. In Iowa on the Republican side, you re may remember back in 2012. Well, you may remember who 
won or you may not remember who won because on caucus night, the GOP actually announced that Mitt Romney had won the Iowa caucuses. But in fact, he had not. He got all the good publicity for having won on on caucus night. But in fact, it wasn't true. Thanks to those publicly overseen hand counts of those little scraps of paper at the caucus site, uh, and the count that takes place before the results are sent to the central headquarters, we know now, and we, we came to learn uh, a few days later, that it wasn't Mitt Romney who had won. It was actually Rick Santorum. And we knew that because when the Republican Party eventually posted the numbers, people at the caucus sites who had overseen the counting, the public who had overseen the counting, said, no, no, they got the wrong number for our caucus site. They have... 22 votes for Mitt Romney, for example, when in fact he only had two votes at our caucus site. We saw it. We saw the counting. We took photographs of the totals. We know what what actually happened. And that is, frankly, the way the system is supposed to work. You know, uh, if, if you say that the, the Republicans ended up reporting the wrong numbers uh, nefariously because they wanted to help Mitt Romney, OK, or if they ended up reporting the wrong numbers accidentally and accidentally helped uh, Mitt Romney, OK, either way, whether it was a mal whether it was malfeasance or malfunction, thanks to the hand counted paper ballots at the local level, we were able to find out exactly who actually won the 2012 Republican caucuses. Transparency. That's why I'm always decrying uh, computer uh, tallied ballots, even you know, hand-marked paper ballots. If they're counted by computers, we don't know if they're counted accurately or not. So hand-counted paper ballots at the precinct, publicly counted in front of everyone before they're sent back to headquarters. That's the system. That's the gold standard for democracy in this country, and we get it almost nowhere other than a few towns in New Hampshire and all across Iowa on election uh, night from the Republicans of all people. So that's the way the, the two different systems work. And by the way, uh, when all was said and done, Ron Paul ended up actually uh, receiving the lion's share of the Iowa delegates later on at the state convention. But as far as who voted for whom, we were able to know that because it was a public process. Well, there is now something new this year in Ohio, in uh, Iowa. I've talked about the transparency of the system, but now we've got something new on both the Republican and the Democratic side. And uh, today I've been looking at this, trying to figure out exactly what this is for a while. Today, story came out about the uh, uh, the Bernie Sanders campaign raising questions about the involvement of Microsoft in the Iowa caucuses. They have built, Microsoft has built an independent system that will be used, an app, a different one for the Republicans and the Democrats that will be used to send the tallies from the caucus sites to the central headquarters. Okay, this would be for the first time, uh, as reported by uh, MSNBC, they say Microsoft has partnered with the Iowa Democratic and Republican parties to provide a technology platform with which the parties will run their caucuses. 
The arrangement has aroused suspicions of aides to Sanders, who regularly warn that corporate power and the billionaire class are trying to hijack democracy. Pete D'Alessandro, who is running the Iowa portion of Sanders' campaign, questioned the motives of the multi uh, of the major multinational corporation in an interview with MSNBC. He said, you'd have to ask yourself why they want to give something like that away for free. And in fact, they are giving it away for free. The Sanders campaign has built their own reporting system to double-check the results from the official Microsoft-backed app, and it has trained its uh, precinct captains on using the app. And by the way, the Clinton campaign is also preparing its own backup reporting system involving an app and telephone hotline component, according to a campaign aide. Now, I had seen this story a couple of weeks ago, and I started hearing from, from you folks, and by the way, Uh, Always good to hear from you. You can email me. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. Or you can uh, write me on the Twitters or the Facebooks at TheBradBlog. So I had begun to hear from people uh, a few weeks ago about all of this, started looking into it. I spoke with uh, with Bev Harris at Black Box Voting about this. Uh, From as far as I and well, as far as I can tell. Now, there could be something horrible and nefarious here. And in fact, there is a way for, you know, the numbers. But go back to 2004 in Ohio. There are a lot of people who, who believe with some evidence to support them that numbers were changed between the results at the precincts in Ohio to the time that they were ultimately reported by the state of Ohio on their website. There are concerns about a so-called man-in-the-middle attack that might have changed the numbers from the time they were counted at the precinct uh, or or the county level uh, before they were reported publicly by the state. That is largely the concern here with this Microsoft app, that the numbers could somehow change between the time they're counted at the precinct and the time they're reported by the central party headquarters. And that is a legitimate concern. That said, there is at least that transparency that I talked about at the local level, that that is the important thing. The fact is, if the numbers do change, it's harder for bad guys to get away with doing that because we've got all of these people, hundreds, thousands, whatever, who saw what the numbers actually were initially at the original caucus site. And that's true on both the Democratic and the Republican side. People are always going to try to game elections and errors happen in the tabulation of election. But the more eyeballs that are on the process, the better the safer the process, the harder it is for bad guys to get away with things. And it looks like uh, that is what is going on in uh, in Iowa, that, that Microsoft, if you give the least nefarious explanation, they just want to help out the democratic process. Uh, but if something goes wrong, we should know about it because we have transparency at the local level. Now, let me also add Uh, The questions about why would Microsoft want to do this? Why would they want to do this for free? Well, I will let you speculate about their motives. I'll let the Sanders campaign speculate about motives. That's perfectly fine. People should be skeptical about the entire process. People ask me, you know, Brad, do you trust these voting machines? It doesn't matter if I trust them. No, I don't. But if I trust, it doesn't matter. Our system is not built on trust. It's built on checks and balances and oversight.
So when it comes to Microsoft, whether you trust them or not, it doesn't matter. I've spoken with folks at Microsoft over recent years. They have been looking to get into the election game in various ways. Now, the, the people that I've talked to uh, about this, they could be lying to me, but they seem to be fairly legitimate in their interest in uh, getting into the voting system uh, issue. As I say, there's always reason to be skeptical, to be dubious about everybody and anybody, but specifically a big corporation like this. The people that I've talked to, however, so far at least, seem to get it. They seem to understand the need for transparency, the need for oversight, the need for paper ballots, and they are looking at other places where technology may help in our electoral system, like voter registration, uh, online voter registration systems, um, reporting uh, tallies in Iowa, and so forth. So uh, for now, and we'll find out <laughs> as, uh, as the uh, caucus proceeds, for now, should you be concerned about this new Microsoft system? Sure. Be concerned about everything. Is there a reason to be worried that they will be able to use it to somehow game the election? Sure, be worried about it. But understand, as of now, at least, on both the Democratic and the Republican side, we have transparency at the local level. We have public oversight. So if they do try to get away with anything, it should be very, very hard to get away with it uh, without being caught by the public. Don't know if that puts you at ease or not, but that is my understanding of these uh, apps that are being put in place. Uh, I as I said, I talked to Bev Harris at Black Box Voting. She seems to concur that, by and large, mm, this should be okay because of that transparency at the local level. Okay? So... Maybe for now, rest easy. No, don't rest easy. Pay attention, stay vigilant. That's a good thing. But I think we'll find out. I think we'll be okay at the Iowa caucuses. A quick break, and we are back with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report and more right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. <laughs> for Desi Doyen right here on the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Did that make sense to you, Des? Did, did my explanation of, of what's going on in Iowa, what's yeah. going on with this Microsoft app? Yeah, I'm, the, I, I find the Microsoft okay. app and offering it for free to be fairly suspicious. But sure. as far as uh, we know what the... Um, options are for transparency in mm. Iowa and New Hampshire. That does give us some comfort. It means that somebody has to pay attention, well, however. Well, not New Hampshire. That's a whole different story. Oh, That's uh, uh, big trouble in, in little New Hampshire. But as far as Iowa goes, uh, there is that transparency. And by the way, this is essentially, this just replaces the phone call. They used to have a phone system. After they would count the ballots, they would then pick up the phone and give the numbers uh, you know, by voice to the central headquarters. So instead, now they'll send it in by an app. And it'll be received by the app, and there will be redundancy and oversight. At least we hope. There you go. All right, we got to get to it, don't we? Yes, okay, we do. Yes, we do. Let's get to it. Our latest green news report. 
Climate change is the greatest business opportunity to come to the United States in 100 years. Democratic presidential candidates focus on climate and clean energy in Iowa. Well, in terms of short term, it's a lot of work to take out pipes. Flint, Michigan residents stuck with corroded lead pipes for now. It's not just Flint. Poor communities bear the most toxic pollution. Plus, score one for coal miners in the fight against black lung disease. All of those fights and more straight ahead. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. 30 to 35% of your energy now comes from clean Iowa wind, which wasn't there 15 years ago. Well, the wind was there 15 years ago, Governor O'Malley, not the... Oh, never mind. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, well, the Democrats are talking about climate change and energy at their debates and or forums. The Republicans or not, or if they're talking about it. They're basically making fun of global warming, saying it doesn't exist or we shouldn't do anything about it. Well, now we've got 15 mayors in South Florida who are calling on their own state senator and presidential candidate Marco Rubio to knock it off. These are uh, 15 mayors in South Florida, uh, which is facing serious problems already from rising seas. They don't like the fact that their own senator is laughing about climate change, even though, by the way, he didn't laugh about it, you know, 10 years ago when it was OK to talk about climate change, even for Republicans. Ooh, home state smackdown. Yep. What other smackdowns you got for us today? <laughs> well, at the Democratic Presidential Candidates Forum hosted by CNN just before the Iowa caucuses, both Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders and former Maryland Governor Martin O'Malley volunteered that climate change is one of the most important issues facing all future presidents. In terms of climate change, which everybody here knows and apparently everybody in the world knows except Republican candidates for president <laughs> is one of the great environmental crises facing this nation. Governor O'Malley focused on economics, calling climate change a great business opportunity. The greatest business opportunity to come to the United States in 100 years. And I am the first candidate in either party to put forward a plan to move us to a 100 percent clean electric energy grid by 2050 and create 5 million jobs along the way. 30 to 35 percent of your energy now comes from clean Iowa wind, which wasn't there 15 years ago. And you employ 5,000 people in a new industry. And the great thing about those big component parts you see rumbling down the highway on I-80 is you're too darn big for it to make a whole lot of sense to import them from other countries. So you have to build them here. Former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton didn't mention climate or energy at the CNN forum, but to be fair, she also wasn't asked about it. All three Democratic presidential candidates have distinct, detailed policy proposals to address climate and clean energy, plus assist coal communities with the transition. The Republican presidential candidates don't. No, they don't. In the Flint water crisis, Michigan's Republican Governor Rick Snyder has now requested long-term federal funding to mitigate the impacts of lead poisoning on Flint's children in coming decades. But in a press conference on Wednesday, Snyder said there are no plans to immediately replace Flint's corroded water system. That will come later, he says, but he promised new anti-corrosion treatment chemicals will be added to the water and gradually build up a new protective coating inside the pipes over time. 
Meanwhile, Flint residents are still required to pay for that lead-contaminated water that they can't use. Two new class action lawsuits filed this week are seeking to stop the city from shutting off water due to non-payment and are demanding all past and future charges for the contaminated water be wiped out. Yes, they are still being charged some of the highest water rates in the nation for water they can't drink. Amazing. But it is always fun to see these Republicans who hate the federal government turn around and beg for help from the federal government. A new study released this week shows that the poorest communities in America bear the greatest burden of extreme industrial pollution. The study, published in Environmental Research Letters, found that 90 percent of the most toxic pollution is generated by just 5 percent of facilities, so-called super polluters. The study confirms that these super polluters are far more likely to be located in or next to the nation's poorest and minority communities. Finally, a federal appeals court has upheld a new federal standard requiring coal mine companies to reduce coal miners' exposure to coal dust, which causes deadly black lung disease. The court rejected the industry's argument that the cost of installing the new equipment was too expensive and not worth the incremental benefit of reducing coal dust exposure and thus black lung disease. Wow. Avoiding death is now just an incremental benefit, I guess, in the coal industry. It costs too much to save just a few lives. Apparently so. For much more on all of the stories we covered today and the ones we could not get to, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find us and follow us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your Green News Report. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen, our producer. Also, my thanks to Cynthia Cohn, our booking goddess, and to journalist Arun Gupta. Uh, check out his work on the Oregon standoff at rawstory.com. All right. Uh, oh, special coverage of the GOP debate, whoever shows up, coming up in our next thrilling episode. Until then, you can drop me email, bradcast at bradblog.com. Find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. My thanks to you, of course, for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you miss any part of this episode or any other, download it at bradblog.com or over at iTunes where you can subscribe for free and get them all. All right, until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.